0: Good afternoon, all. It's good to be back here with you today. Always miss you when I'm gone, and the chance to be here on Sabbath. We—I uh, was intending to speak over the uh, telephone last week, and we had some technical difficulties. And uh, I knew Nelson had found a good tape, so I, I finally just said, "Let's forget trying to get this together and." just play that, but it is good to be back and live. We have topsy-turvy weather happening in a lot of places. I noticed this morning they're expecting 110-degree weather back in Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina uh, with a temperature inversion or a heat dome, they called it, and uh, they expect it'll break All the heat records for since 1925, Uh, hard on crops back in that area and uh, will cause a lot of difficulty if that indeed be the case. Uh, I know some of you were a little concerned. Uh, I was in Montana and working on uh, Gloria's place, trying to get it ready for her to, she's got all utilities now. I got the well. The pump put in the well and all that set up so she has water and the septic is in as is the electric Uh, so we got that all up and uh, i built a storage shed this and that uh, trying to get that ready she wants to put a house up there uh, for summer use and for your use if you want to go up and visit yellowstone if you can get in and uh spend some time there if you want kind of as a vacation place for any and everyone here uh, is her thought Uh, there was flooding uh, during the time it was there Uh, they called it a 500 and even a thousand year flood event only happens that often that bad and indeed there were houses floating down some of the rivers and uh They shut Yellowstone down completely. No visitors can come in. They managed to get everybody pretty well out. But uh, where her place is, is high enough that there's no problem. The only problem was getting across bridges. And uh, there were some bridges washed out in the area. And uh, the one that we used primarily to get to town had water over it for a couple, three days, and uh, then that backed off, but it didn't wash the bridge out, thankfully. Uh, there is a way by back roads to get in and around into the freeway and get out of there, even with the flooding that was going on if those bridges had gone. Uh, but still in all, it was it was a powerful thing to watch. When that Yellowstone River started going over its banks and creeping into towns, and it got into the sewage treatment Plant in the Great Falls, not in Great Falls, in uh, Billings. And uh, they were thinking of shutting the entire water system down to the city. Uh, the water treatment plant, not just the sewage plant that it got into. And even Great Falls, Montana, way north, uh, the three rivers come out of the west side of Yellowstone that form, they come together at three rivers and form the Missouri. Madison Jefferson and the Gallatin they were all flooding which meant that it flooded clear up in Great Falls where the Missouri comes through there and you have to look at a map to understand how much water comes out of Yellowstone Park the Snake River comes out of the south which is a major river down through Teton's and then through Southeast Idaho and the three main ones that form the Missouri come out of the west side and out of the north comes the Yellowstone, uh, the Stillwater. Uh, Those go into the Missouri and uh, then on the east the Clark Fork of the Yellowstone is a huge river and uh, several more come out the east side. Uh, It's just, I don't know how much rain and snow can fall in there and create that much water. I almost wonder if some of it's coming from underground. But it's cold water. Of course, they do have lots of geysers and uh, hot water and so on in there. But it's like it's kind of the water center of the west (laughs) is what it amounts to. Uh, Well, the Green River comes out just southeast of the park uh, and comes clear down. Forms Flaming Gorge Reservoir so there's a lot of water and then when it came out like it did this last 10 days it's, it's an amazing thing to watch and behold so um, I believe that they are certainly manipulating the weather down here it just gets hotter and drier and Lake Mead and Lake Powell are just simply drying up Flaming Gorge on the Utah uh, Wyoming border is a huge reservoir, uh, and it's they've they've dropped it about looked to me like on the rain theres so went by at least twenty feet. it's dropped because they had to take water out of it to try to get water into Powell and Lake Mead. And that's not working too well. Uh, those lakes are falling very rapidly. And it's not very far from the time when they can't get any electric generated or water to Los Angeles, Phoenix, Tucson, and on and on. So uh, these are indeed very, very serious times. Interestingly, a lot of Montana is in drought, even though you, everywhere you look it's just a carpet of green. Uh, and as you come south, uh, the green begins to dissipate and then it gets to this Uh, God could have put us in a place like that I've said several times but he gave us this to show his glory Uh, when he can green the desert up and make it bloom bloom as a rose the glory of God will come true so we've got lots of wind blowing even today pretty pretty rare pretty rough and we had a lot of wind up there too it blows so hard you could hardly stand up sometimes so things are tough all over now that kind of leads me into material for today um, I've had Questions in my mind for decades, really, about how we ought to look at things here at the end. I talked to someone in the last week or ten days, not from our group, but elsewhere that has been part of the church for a long time as well. And uh, this individual says they don't watch world news anymore, that uh, the watchmen are to watch the church and watch the people so he doesn't watch the news well I've always been one to kind of keep an eye on the news and what's going on in the world and in the nation and so on and yet I know some feel like that person does that you don't need to pay attention to those things because they're just out there and they're happening and it doesn't matter well does it or does it not I think it's a good question uh a scripture came to my mind just out of memory about don't desire the day of the Lord. And yet, here's Matthew 6, 9 and 10, where he says gives a sample prayer. And the first thing in there is give glory to God, hallowed his name. And the next thing mentioned is thy kingdom come. So we're to be praying, thy kingdom comes. I think that indicates an urgency, something that's top on our list of something we want to happen, and he put it at the top of our prayer list. Thy kingdom come. And yet we have the day of the Lord between now and that and a scripture that says don't desire the day of the Lord. So there have been times I've had mixed feelings about it. Well, we got to get to the other side of these things, and yet we don't want to have them come. Well, how could this be? To me, it's kind of a, a mixed bag or has been in some ways. So what about it? What should our attitude be? How should we feel about these things that are happening before our very eyes now and are going to be very gruesome are going to be death to billions of people. And yet the kingdom of God, we want to be here ASAP. So how do we think and how do we pray? And do we want the day of the Lord to come or don't desire it? Which is it? In some respects, you can kind of try to walk the middle road down through there, but is that sufficient? What should the overall attitude be? So today, we're going to examine a lot of scriptures on the day of the Lord and see if we can find some wisdom and understanding about it and about our approach and our attitude and our position in terms of what's going on in the world because we see awful things happening and about to happen. Uh, They're right on the verge, a lot of things. Now consider times of the past and how God has handled something. And I think this introduces some thought at least. Uh, When the prophets wrote, God put an awful lot of urgency into some of those messages. Uh, Ezekiel saying, and you will know that I am the Lord, and so on. And those prophets thought that those prophecies were probably going pretty much to happen in their lifetimes. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel for certain. Uh, He prayed his prayer there in Daniel 9 and about what would happen. And how Jerusalem was to be rebuilt and God would deliver. Uh, And he was an old man by then. He had outlived Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, And now he was working with uh, Cyrus at that time. And as an old man, it changed. Now he was hoping for all kinds of blessings to come at the end of the 70 years. And he asked God, Now's the time, bless us. He understood the 70 years were over after reading Jeremiah. So he thought, ah, everything good's about to happen. Some some good things did. Uh, And yet, God then told him, seal up the book until the end. So Daniel must have realized somewhere in there, this isn't going to all happen right now. These things that I'm writing... It's got to be sealed up till the end, so I must be going to die, and this comes later because I'm sealing the book. So toward the end of his life, he got the feeling, uh, this isn't in my lifetime, this is on down the road. But God let him think for a long time, as the other prophets, that this was coming soon and right away. And indeed, the destruction that Jeremiah talked about and going into captivity did, but at the same time, it's a prophecy for the end time and is even mentioned as such. So, God gave those people a certain sense of urgency about the times. It may have caused them a lack of sleep at times, to wonder about these things that they were told to write down. And they had a message then for people. Now you fast forward to the New Testament, and we've mentioned this on several occasions, how the apostles, by the things they wrote, indicated they thought Christ was coming back in their lifetime. It was very clear that they expected that. Now, why did God allow them to work under that misconception? He did it on purpose. Christ could have very easily told them exactly when and how. And if they'd known it was 2,000 years away, they'd have probably sighed and relaxed and gone fishing. So he let them think it was in their time. He didn't lie to them. He just said things in such a way that they would think that, or didn't dispel the idea that they had of that. He just let it go for a purpose. Herbert Armstrong thought it was all coming in his lifetime. It gave him a sense of urgency. He would get scared, and he would say, oh, it's here. This is the gun lap. How many times... Did you hear him say that? I heard it over and over and over through the years. Uh, sell all you've got. It came out in the 60s. Uh, fill up your credit cards. Help us finish the work. we got to finish this. The time is here. So he thought it was coming without doubt in his lifetime, and he's been dead for over three decades now, uh, and it's still not here. Now, I grew up thinking it was coming in my lifetime. I guess a better hurry. <laughs> not really totally here yet. I think it's here, but it's not totally here yet. Now, why did he let us labor through that, thinking it was now? I think the apostles began to realize it wasn't in their lifetime when they started getting hung upside down and things of that nature. Uh, And here's John, the apostle, who was the last one of them, well into his 90s, around the turn of the century, 100 A.D. or so, and he had believed what he had believed, the same as the others, for nearly all his life, from 30 A.D. to 100 A.D. And then he got the book of Revelation thrown at him. And he saw all these horrible things coming, and he realized by then, as an old man, after already having lived his life, for the most part, that it wasn't coming in his time. And he probably realized that as he saw the apostles picked off one after another, after another, after another. There was a certain amount of enlightenment that had to have been given to him just watching And then he knew he was old and feeble, and here comes the book of Revelation. And wow, must have shocked him to see all that. that still had to happen, and he was about ready to lay down and go to sleep. So we've all labored under this. Now what would God's purpose be in that? Well, each of those people through all those ages needed to do what? They needed to walk with God. They needed to quit sinning. They needed to grow and to overcome. Now, that was the message of the prophets all the way through, that we've gone through, and the message in the book of Revelation and all the churches at the end. Grow and overcome, and you'll be in the kingdom. Now, had any of those people through the ages thought, this is going on for thousands of more years, it would have made it too easy to relax. This isn't my life. But they're going to be judged, those prophets, in particular ones from the Old Testament, the early New Testament, and now, by their own life. So each age needed a sense of urgency so that they might grow and overcome. So God let them wander about and what if we're wrong? I don't think we are. I think we're there now. But what if we're wrong? And it goes on another 100 or 200 years or whatever. I still need a personal sense of urgency because my life is going to end, if it goes on that long, before it ever happens. And I need to have grown and overcome And become more like the Father and the Son so I can be in the kingdom of God when I'm resurrected. So we all, from Adam and Eve on, needed a sense of urgency about God and eternal life. So he let different people for years and years, age upon age, have a sense of urgency, thinking it was time. That's why Christ even warned at times, you don't know when this is. He mentions day and hour, and we've said, well, we might still know the year. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. What he's saying is, you just don't know what's going to happen when. Therefore, you personally need to get ready for whatever's coming. No matter when you live. that said, let's get into the day of the Lord and see what we might learn. I'm going to start in Isaiah 2. He's talking to the last days, verse 2. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples will flow into it. So God is going to establish a righteousness in Zion that people can flow to. And then he talks for quite a few verses down there about people who are living in sin, living the wrong way, not doing what they ought to be doing, the whole world basically. And he tells people in that category in verse 10, enter into the rock and hide you in the dust for fear of the eternal and for the glory of his majesty. Now, he's not talking to church people here who are obeying him. The context is people who are deep in sin and that they better hide from God uh, because he's coming and there's a lot to fear. That's the, the thrust of this. The other places talk about his church hiding themselves in their chamber or their place. But this is addressing sinners. And he continues that thought then in verse 11. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down, and the eternal alone shall be exalted in that day. Men exalt themselves. We have people right now in the world in leadership positions who are exalting themselves to rule the world, thinking that they alone are smart enough to rule the entire earth. God isn't involved, many of them actually worship Satan openly, and they think that with the knowledge from him and their own intelligence, they can do a good job of ruling the world with one world government. They honestly think that. They don't think they're doing wrong. They think that they are certainly qualified to rule the earth and to rule over you if you survive. But God says that will be knocked down. He tells his people to humble themselves and be meek, and maybe he will save them there in Zephaniah too and other places. So he says, they'll be humble. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty. Uh, Don't be that way. (laughs) And upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. He will be above all, and he will put down all opposition, all pride of man. So that is his goal and his purpose in the day of the Lord, is to destroy all pride, just to put it in a sentence. One to chapter 13. Isaiah addressed that right away at the beginning of this book, didn't he? The burden of Babylon. So this is the burden of Satan's system, a burden against Satan's system. Not just a place of Babylon in the past, or the place of the rulership of Babylon, which is the United States today. Uh, we're quickly being deposed, and Babylon will have a new ruler. It won't be the United States. It'll be destroyed. So, another Babylon will arise. Same system, Satan's system. Just different human leaders. So, this is a burden against Satan's system. Lift up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt a voice to them, shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my set-aside ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, even them that rejoiced in my highness. So he's going to exalt someone to speak for God. Verse 6, How you, for the day of the Eternal is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. All hands will be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. They shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them like a woman in childbirth. Uh, It comes, verse 9, Cool both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. Uh, Even the stars of heaven, verse 10, and constellations shall not give their light. Sun darken, moon will not shine. And who is this addressed to? Verse 11, And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. A man will be more precious than gold. In other words, find gold is hard to find, and finding a man will be hard to do, because he's going to destroy so many. He'll shake the heavens and the earth, and remove it out of its place. Uh, Verse uh, 15. Everyone that is found shall be thrust through, fall by the sword, children dashed, and on it goes. Verse 19, Babylon, on the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So this world and its system is going to be pretty much like Sodom and Gomorrah and hard to find people left alive. But it's coming here against Satan's world which is essentially the entire world with few exceptions and we'll get to those. So, who should be afraid there? (laughs) Anyone who is arrogant and proud and exalts himself. See why God says don't have pride? Jeremiah forty six uh, here let's go down to uh well about seven verse seven who is this that comes up as a flood, whose waters are moved as the rivers? I just saw some flood waters. And they can be terrible, uh, awful, destroying everything in their path. Egypt rises up like a flood, and his waters are moved like the rivers. Egypt, speaking of the sinful world, is a type. Uh, I will destroy the city and the inhabitants. And then he calls for horses and chariots for destruction. Verse 10 For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance. That he may avenge him of his adversaries. So it's coming against the sinful world, pictured by Egypt as a type, and all of God's adversaries. I would not want to be in that category when this hits an adversary of God. Uh, we would not consider ourselves adversaries of God. I'm not against God, are you? Well, it's a mixed bag. My human nature is adverse to his ways. My human nature is against his laws. My human nature is to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. The mind is deceitful and desperately wicked and evil. That's what we are. So we have to be converted from being adversarial in our approach to where we, how I love I thy law, instead of being adverse to it. And this is, of course, a daily struggle that we all go through, moment by moment, hour by hour, and day by day, to submit ourselves to God's way as opposed to Satan and the way of man, which are adversarial to God. So, no, I don't consider myself An enemy of God. I consider myself a servant of God, a son of God, a child of God, hopefully an honorable child, not a prodigal child. And yet, within every one of us is this struggle to be the kind of son we ought to be. Just as our children struggle and we work with them to become the kind of child and the kind of adult eventually that. Is good. But it's a struggle from the day they're born in rebellion, screaming their lungs out, uh, until they go quietly into a grave. It is a struggle. So it just reminds us here when he says his adversaries that while we're not outright enemies of God by any means, there is an adverseness in human nature that we need to be rid of, and that's why he says, humble yourselves and be meek and uh, poor in spirit so that you don't have the pride and haughtiness and arrogance that most human beings promote and live with. Oh, you should be proud, people will say. I'll bet you're proud. No. Wrong words, wrong advice. Never be proud. Be thankful. Be happy. Even God didn't say, I'm sure proud of you, Jesus. He says, you're my son in whom I am well pleased. God doesn't have pride as humans have pride. So, as we read about this destruction that is coming, uh, we also are thinking... I don't want to be there. I don't want to be one of those. I want to be something else. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be satiate and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. And he goes on down and talks about destruction that is coming. Uh, We won't go through all of that, but we see enough here to get the point. Go to Ezekiel 13. Up uh, verse four here. <clears throat> o Israel, your prophets are like the foxes in the desert. So here he's not just uh, addressing Babylon, Satan's system, or Egypt, all the centers of the earth, but Israel in particular. Your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. What good do they do? You have not gone up into the gas neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the eternal. Foxes are shy. They don't make themselves known. They wander around and hunt at night. They steal your chickens uh, and whatever else they can find if they can get hold enough uh, that they can destroy. And he says the prophets are like that. They haven't showed up and made a hedge and been ready to stand in the battle. Most foxes as you see, you'll see mainly their tail departing. Uh, you won't see them standing up and fighting much. They have seen vanity and lying divination, saying, The Lord says, and the Lord has not sent them, and they have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. What do a lot of the Protestant prophets say? They teach people of a secret rapture. They teach them that the day of the Lord is coming to destroy the evil, and God is going to get rid of sinners, but you wonderful people are going to be raptured away before this occurs. That's a damnable lie. They are not going to be raptured out ahead of it. But that's what they've been taught, and that's what they expect. You read some of the alternative news in the comments under some of the articles, and people will talk about, oh, sure I'm thankful there's going to be a rapture. Sure I'm thankful I'll be taken out of this. Just up into the air and gone. Now there is a first resurrection, and the rapture is one of Satan's uh, lying um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sometimes the word just won't come. What's that counterfeit? that's one just' a simple word. I just wouldn't come. Uh, I'm getting old. Must have a sense of urgency about me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a counterfeit that is a lying divination. And it confuses people as to what is, and they have have a, a totally false hope. Have you not seen a vain vision? Have you not spoken a lying divination, says, whereas you say the Lord says, and he hasn't spoken? You won't find the secret rapture in the Bible. Just not in there. My hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity and that divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people or written in the writing of the house of Israel. And you shall know that I am the eternal. They said peace and there was no peace. And on and on it goes. So anyone who is saying anything that's contrary to this word is getting themselves into deep trouble. Those who pay attention to this word, we will find, have some hope of some good things. Go to chapter 30 of Ezekiel. We're laying a lot of groundwork here with passages about the day of the Lord, uh, so we can better understand it. Chapter 30, God's word came, saying, Son of man, prophesy, how you. Woe worth the day. Speak things of great woe that are worth the day that is coming. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, a cloud day, cloudy day, it shall be the time of the heathen. The sword will come upon the sinful world, and so on. So the day of the Lord is against who again? The heathen. Those who do not serve God is whom the day of the Lord is proposed for and will come upon. Now, if you're not a heathen, that is, someone who is not serving God, which is pretty much the whole world, then this isn't talking about you. It's talking about those who won't serve God, the heathen. They're the ones that need to be scared to death. As they see this day approaching. Joel 1. Joel mentions a lot about the day of the Lord. I'm not going to go into great depth and detail of all of these. But kind of an overview of all the different scriptures about the day of the Lord. Joel 1. Let's go to verse 15. He's talking about how terrible things are going to get uh, physically, uh, food-wise, as we see coming upon us right now, and he calls for a fast. He's not talking to the heathen there, a solemn assembly of God's people, so he's showing what they need to be doing, fasting, praying, uh, turning to God, <laughs> cry to the eternal, Verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and his destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, and joy and gladness from the house of our God? And then he goes on and talks about terrible times that are coming. Chapter 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all... The inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the eternal comes for it is near at hand. So all the inhabitants of the land. But he has some who are to sound the trumpet in Zion. Not everybody is to be in fear of this. Some are to be proclaiming it and speaking of it and warning against it. Not in fear of it, as the heathen and the Egyptian and the Babylonian are. And then he talks about how it is a day of clouds and darkness. Uh, and there's never been the like of the destruction that comes. And the de- then they're devoured by fire and the noise of chariots or warfare. Goes on and on about that. Uh, verse 11 The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? Now there is an answer to that. But it is a severe warning that is going to be so bad that it is going to be hard to abide it. Therefore, also now, says the Eternal, Turn to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn to the eternal your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repents him, or relents him, of the evil. Who knows that he will return and relent? So, you have a category of people here who need to fear it greatly because of famine and pestilence and war. And then some who have the good sense and enough godliness to heed these scriptures and be turning to God. If they're doing that, they don't need to fear the day of the Lord in the same way that those it is coming upon need to fear. So there's really two categories of people here beginning to emerge. Most of the world who is heathen against God... And those who know better and have a chance to be humble and meek as opposed to proud and arrogant, and a difference then can be made. So going back to our question at the beginning, what should our attitude be toward the day of the Lord? If you're a heathen, run for cover. Hide in the dust. If you're a Christian... Turn to God with all your heart and humble yourself before him. Not stand in great fear of it, but know that there is a way away from it and out of it. And pursue that path. Then he goes on and says again to call a fast, gather the people, let the people uh, repent, turn to God. And, verse 21, those in that category are to be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. And then he goes on to talk about how he is going to protect and bless a certain category of people when all of this comes down. So he makes a division, even in this terrible book of Joel, where he pronounces this great curse of the day of the Lord upon the world, and makes a separation for those who will obey and serve him in meekness and humility. So there's great hope here. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, the stars shall withdraw their light, The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Eternal will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of spiritual Israel, we might put in there. So he's going to issue a warning from Mount Zion through the two and those with them against the whole world. They will be in a place of safety from this. Now let's go to Amos 5. Amos 5. Uh, Verse 12. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe. And they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. We see people in leadership positions, not leaders, but leadership positions in our nation today, who are doing exactly this. Therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time. Time to keep your mouth shut when all this is coming down. Are those in Washington afflicting those who are trying to serve God? Christians, so called, are real. Are they taking a bribe? The whole Biden family and the Clintons, and all of them, are doing that. Obama's, uh, Trump's, all of them. And they turn aside the poor and negate the from their right. Are they taking away our rights? Are they taking away our food? Are they taking away our freedoms? Yes, this is happening right now, today, as we sit here. This is a good time to just kind of back off and be quiet. (laughs) It isn't time to march on Washington for those who are serving God. Time for them to be quiet. and doesn't even tell the two. Just preach to the church and those that worship at the altar and leave the rest, the court of the Gentiles out. Shut up. Deal with the church during this particular time. They'll be given a voice and power later. But in this time just before, no. Don't do that. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. The world is full of evil. Don't seek that. Seek good, that you may live. So the house of the eternal, the God of hosts, shall be with you. As you have spoken, hate the evil and love the good, and establish judgment in the gate, it may be that the eternal God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. It is not an outright, total, complete promise there, because there is a certain contingency as always. Even the righteous could be deceived if it were possible, even the righteous. Could not endure to the end and give up and not be protected. So God covers that. Says so you get in the right attitude and you'll probably be covered. I think is the force of it. But if you get in a wrong attitude and you don't approach it right and you don't approach me right, then that protection will be withdrawn and you will suffer like the rest. And indeed, he talks about 90% of the church going into the tribulation and not being protected. So there is a genuine concern here, that we do our part, and maybe he will protect us. Woe to you that desire the day of the Lord. Here's that one. Verse 18. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall, thinking it was safe, and a serpent did him. In other words, it's dangerous any and everywhere, even in your own house. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark, and no brightness in it? I hate, I detest your feast days. And he goes on down and talks about them. Verse chapter 6, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. So he's saying there is a certain level of danger, even of those who are of God, as I just explained. There's always contingency to do our part, and he will most certainly do his part if we do ours. Then he warns those in verse 3, you that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near. You say it's a long way away, and yet the more you depart from God, the nearer it comes, Uh, the worse we get, in other words, the more wrath and anger God stores up to turn loose. Uh, Obadiah 15. This is a warning primarily uh, against uh, Edom or Esau. Those who say they are Jews that are not. Verse 15. Well, he's been talking about how they should not have arrayed themselves against Israel. And then it says in verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. They've drunk on the holy mountain. They've polluted God's people. they polluted physical Israel by this time. And he says the day of the Lord will come upon them. So he gives a specific warning to those of Esau, Edomites, or uh, so-called Jews. It falls on everybody that does not serve God. Uh, Go to Zephaniah. This one warns of a coming financial crash, which we see uh, accelerating day by day right now. Uh, Verse 4, I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. Speaking of Israel and Judah here overall. And the name of them, uh, of the Kimarim's false idols with the priests. And those that worship the host of heaven, Satan, and them that worship and that swear by the eternal and swear by Malcolm, and them that have turned back from the eternal, those who have given up or who have left, who have left the church, and those that have not sought the eternal nor inquired of him. The day of his sacrifice is coming, verse 8. His sacrifice is prepared, the day of the Lord, in verse 7, and he's bid his guests those that he's going to sacrifice and kill. And it shall come to pass, verse 8, in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such are clothed with strange apparel. We had better have on the garments of righteousness, clean conduct, arrayed and prepared and dressed for the wedding, if you will anyone with strange soiled dirty off color clothing speaking of righteousness and sin is going to have this fall upon them so here again you see two categories those who are sinful and living in sin and those who are departing from it Haggai doesn't mention day of the Lord specifically in those words (coughs) But in chapter 2, he says in verse 6, For thus says the Eternal of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory. So he's talking about his remnant uh, will be filled with glory, but the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, when he shakes it, are going to be shaken out and killed. So here again, two different groups the righteous and the unrighteous. Which group will we be in? Uh, Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord comes and your spoil shall be divided in the midst of you. Your spoil is those things which you have, and others will divide it among themselves because you're going to be killed. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half will go into captivity, and the residue shall not be cut off. Uh, then shall the Lord go forth and fight among those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. This is just before his coming to the Mount of Olives. He's going to put down all of those who are in opposition, again, the adversaries. Uh, So it's end of times, day of the Lord, when all this comes down. Now let's notice in Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the eternal. There is a chance, there is an opportunity for some to repent. Now, you look back at Elijah and the woman who was willing to help him to help others is the principle there. Someone comes and is in need She was willing to help, and she was delivered from death and starvation that was going on in the nation. And then her son died, and even he was delivered through resurrection. So God showed through Elijah's ministry in life that there is hope, and there is even hope when there is no hope. Hope in God is always there. And resurrection will occur, whether in this life or in the first or second resurrection, it will occur. So part of the message of Elijah is revealed right there, is that there is hope in God. And then he challenged all the prophets of Baal and wiped them out, showing that God is going to wipe out, as he said in Zephaniah 1, All the false gods and all the false prophets, as Isaiah says. And only those who are willing to listen and worship the true God will be preserved. That's essentially what Elijah's life was all about, was to get those points across. But here he says, he'll turn the heart of the fathers to the children And the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse, it should be really, of total death. So here he's saying, I'm going to send an opportunity. I'm going to send a chance. And I've always said, this isn't just your little kiddies to their daddies. This is the heart of Israelites and church people to the Father in heaven. And his heart, then, to his spiritual children. That's the highest form of what this is talking about. And that is the most critical one by far. Is that we turn our hearts to God, and thereby he turn his heart to us and protect us. Otherwise, everybody gets wiped out, right? Didn't Christ say, for the elect's sake I will cut it short, and not everybody will be destroyed? Well, that's what... Malachi 4 verse 5 is saying, pay attention, turn to God. (laughs) That's your only hope. You don't need any other hope. I'm not implying that. That is the hope. That's what we have. Now we should also be turning our heart to Abraham and Sarah and the other patriarchs who are mentioned in Hebrews 11. Because they served God and are going to live. So turn to the Father and turn to our brothers and sisters of the past who overcame, grew, conquered, and are going to be in the kingdom of God. And at the same time, the lowest level would be our little children to their daddies. But that is a huge type of the higher spiritual levels. If we can have our families in accord and living at peace, father, mother, children, all working together to form a peaceful, happy, cohesive family. We have a world full of dysfunctional families right now. That needs to change. So we need to be living that out on our physical level, but going higher than that with the prophets and God on the higher spiritual levels. Because the great and coming dreadful day of the Lord is at hand. And unless for the very elect, everyone will be wiped out. That's what he means here when he says, lest I smite the earth with the curse. There better be some of you that straighten up, or everybody's dead. Okay? Now, how much pressure does that put on you and me to be the ones that do that? It is in our hands, in one sense, in a limited way, what happens to the world. If there aren't some wretched human beings who humble themselves and seek the eternal with all their heart, he says, I'm going to wipe everybody out. Now, you and I, on our own, cannot be totally innocent of adversarialness to God because of our wretched human natures. Therefore, we need to be working hard at being the ones who are the healers of the breach, not like the foxes that run off in the desert and don't stand up, but those who are willing to stand up spiritually before God, preparing themselves to go against the world when the time comes but keeping quiet in the meantime. That's what he tells us to do. Am I running out of time already? Uh, let's go to the New Testament and hit just a few here. Uh, well, not quite there. Let's go to Ezekiel 9 first. Here he gives... Uh, some instruction that goes along with what I've just been saying. Ezekiel 9. And here let's start in verse 4. Here he's telling a man with an ink horn and a and a pad of paper to write certain things down and to do certain things. And the Eternal said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, that's Israel, physical people as a whole, and the church spiritual Israel, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. <coughs> Those who are sad, who are heartsick, who sigh and who cry about the abominations in our land and in the church. They are to have a mark put on them. What mark is that? That's the seal of God. Now you have the mark of the beast coming, and it is upon us. And they are in the process of administrating it and putting chips and hands and foreheads and vaccines and who knows what to get us to submit to the beast. It is arising among the people out of the sea at this moment. But what about those that sigh and cry for the abominations? And to uh, to the others, he said in my hearing, Go you after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Slay utterly old and young, maids and little children and women, the whole population. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary, the church. And they began at the, uh got that almost marked out, ancient man, which were before the house. And he said, defile the house, fill the courts with the slain, and go forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. So God is going to make a difference between those who hate the evil that is going on, and those who are going along with it who will all be slain. So here again you see two groups. Those that hate sin, those that are sighing and crying over what's going on, and those who are not. Now Acts 2 Acts 2, and I want down about verse 20 here, will spend much time in it, but the impressive things that happened there in Acts, uh, we all know about, but I want to pick up this about the day of the Lord. <clears throat> uh Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Eternal shall be saved. There's you some New Testament instruction. It's coming, it's coming upon all the heathen, it's coming against the whole earth, but those that call upon the name of God will be saved. You men of Israel, hear these words. And then he goes on down and verse thirty eight said, Repent and be baptized, that you might be protected, that you might be apart from this world and what's about to happen to it. I haven't seen anything yet, have you? that says that the righteous ought to fear and tremble and run and hide when the day of the Lord comes? No, so far, far what I'm seeing is humble yourself, reckon yourself as poor in spirit, be meek, serve God with all your heart, and everything will be okay. That's what he's saying. Now he tells the heathen to fear the day of the Lord. I think that message is coming through pretty clear, isn't it? Peter makes the same uh, statement. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Some really good instruction here about this particular time. Beginning of verse 1. But the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write you. Now he thought this was upon them, and they thought this was upon them from what he and others in the church had taught them. So they thought it was imminent. So he said, I don't need to write to you about that. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a feast in the night. They had read all these. Scriptures that you and I have just gone through in the Old Testament. They were there then. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. We read the same words about a woman in labor in one of those in the Old Testament that he's quoting here. But you, brethren, he makes... Paul makes a difference here, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. We see it coming. You and I are watching what's going on in the world, and we see it coming. We see that it is really already here, just not in fullness yet. It's like when you pour water in a bucket. You cover the bottom, and then it comes up, and it gets fuller and fuller. And this whole thing is going to get fuller and fuller. It's going to get worse and worse. And this is stink water, not fresh water going in the bucket. You are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. We don't have to worry about the dark day. Because we're in the light. He says, the light will shine from Zion. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. We're not people of the night. When do you sleep? Basically at night. So he says, you don't have to sleep. You need to be awake. Because you're not in darkness. Let us watch and be sober. I didn't go there. Maybe I will. Luke twenty-one thirty-six talks about how we are to watch and pray that we be accounted worthy to escape these things. That's Christ's own words, directly spoken when he was here, echoing what we've been reading in the Old Testament all the way through. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But what about us? The rest of the world is in darkness and asleep. But let us, who are of the day, do what? Be sober-minded, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to fear it in the way that the world does. Grow in hope, grow in love, grow in faith. By our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Whether when this comes down, you're already dead, or you're still alive and remain. doesn't matter. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you also are already doing. So when we see the clouds darkening and the day of the Lord coming upon the world, and we see it, we are to comfort one another with these words. We are to talk about it. We are to discuss it. We are to say, let's serve God. Let's grow in faith and in love and in hope and in the salvation of the eternal. That is where our hope lies. That is what we are to focus on and talk about and understand while at the same time we are sighing and crying that all this sickness and evil is here. We want to be on the other side of it. When he said, don't desire the day of the Lord, remember the context? It was if you're heathen. It was if you're disobedient or adverse to God. But all through, it is giving encouragement to those who don't have to worry about it. Only to the level of fearing God and serving Him. Now we need to fear it enough, fear Him enough, that we obey and serve Him so that we're protected from Satan and the beast. Let's add one more to that. Peter quotes what Paul wrote here. He obviously had read it. Second Peter. And here I want uh, chapter 3. This second epistle, beloved, I now write to you In both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now, we talked about earlier today our adversarial mind, and he is trying to stir up their pure mind. (coughs) That part of their mind that has been converted and is led by the Spirit of God, in other words. That's what needs to be stirred up. To remember the words of God that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. So he's telling us to go back and remember the things the prophets said. That's why I went through those today and reminded us of them and expounded them a bit to show who was who and which was which. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. People who scoff and say, it isn't, or it isn't now. Well, it was now for Peter. He was killed not too long after this. It was now for him. He had to be ready. And I think he was, because he says it says he will be over one of the tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God. For this they willingly are ignorant of, of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world a thin was, being overflowed with water, perished. Noah's flood. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, survive the flood, by the same word are kept in store, reserved to fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The ungodly is who this is coming upon. But beloved, You're in a different category. Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the eternal as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And he's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is suffering to whom? To us. Not willing that any of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So to the church, to the ones Peter was writing, he says, God wants us to repent. God wants not to have wrath and anger against us. We've experienced some of it spiritually, and I hope we're getting past that and can be humble and meek before Him and escape this. So He says, You need to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. In other words, terrible. Trouble coming, the earth itself is not going to be burned. Few men will be left, Isaiah 24. But what about us? Seeing then that all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, Now, does that tell us a little about attitude? Looking forward to that day. Now, everyone else who's heathen, most of the population of the earth, need to be running from it. But he tells us to look for it. To know the kingdom of God is just after. I think that partially begins to answer my question at the beginning. I want to see it come as soon as possible. Why? This is Satan's world. This is Satan's whole system. I want to see Satan's system gone as soon as possible. And it's going to kill most people on the earth in order for that to happen. But when it says, right after hallowing God's name... Pray thy kingdom come. It means with all your heart. It means let's get past all this as soon as possible. I'm not to fear the day of the Lord. The heathen are. I am to be humble and meek and serving God and looking for and hastening toward the day of the Lord. It's what Peter says in so many words. We are not to fear it in that sense. We are to fear God, serve Him, and realize we will be protected if that is what we do. Looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved. I shouldn't be putting it off because of the destruction and the Death and the horror that is coming. I should be praying, Thy kingdom come as soon as possible and please bring the day of the Lord and get us over this. Get rid of the abominations. We are to sigh and cry for them. We are to hate them so that we have the seal of God in our foreheads and therefore are protected and not destroyed when it does come. If we're obeying God and have the right attitude, we have nothing to worry about. And therefore, pray that it comes as soon as possible because the kingdom of God is just on the other side of it. He doesn't say, be mealy mouthed in your prayer and pray that the day of the Lord be put off because of people going to be killed, but send your kingdom soon anyway. It's not what it says. Thy kingdom come, and then look for and haste toward it, and pray that the day of the Lord get here as soon as possible. I think we, overall, have probably had somewhat of that attitude, even though we had some questions in our mind about the misery that is about to come. But no, let's get on with it. That's why when I read the news and I see droughts and floods and persecutions and hate and wars and rumors of wars and threats of starvation, I look upon it as good news. I truly do. It's good news that these things are coming because the day of the Lord is with them and right after them enduring them, and it is to come hastily in our mind in attitude. I'm not going to pray, God kill them all with a negative attitude, but I will pray. Spend the day of the Lord as soon as possible. Let's get over this and have your kingdom here so that everybody can live in peace and happiness and wholeness and joy. This has got to come. Let's get it on. I'm not going to be a fox to run off in the desert and say, well, let's go hide from this, as the mealy mouth Protestants do, and a lot of members of preachers in the church do. Let's get on with it. What did David say? Who is this heathen that comes up against the house of Israel? Give me my slingshot. Forget your armor. Give me my slingshot and I'll go fetch some rocks and we're going to knock this guy off. Let's get rid of Goliath who represented what? The pagan, Philistine, and other pagan worlds. He didn't turn tail and go back to his sheepies. He said, let's get it on. Let's get it done. Let's fight. I'm not going to turn tail and run like a fox in the desert. Let's face it. It's coming. It's here. Let's watch for it. And pray always that we be accounted worthy to escape it. But don't back off from it and say, oh, I hope things get better. Oh, that's just too bad. But maybe we'll find a way. Trump's going to save us. Baloney! Nobody's going to save this world from God and his anger against Satan and the beast and the false prophet and everyone who follows them. Satan's system has to go. And when you look at it from that standpoint, this world has to go. Soros has to go. Clinton, Obama has to go. Putin has to go. Thee has to go. Everybody who is not a converted Christian has to go. Satan has to go. Grabbed by the neck and thrown into a lake. A fire. And the sooner the better. Now does that make it a little clearer? Let's not be mealy-mouthed. Let's go to God and say, let's get this thing on. Let's fight. Remember those guys who were sending as spies? They all came out saying, oh, we better go back to the desert. Let our foxtails follow us into the desert. We can't fight these. We can't win. Two guys said, we can do this. Let's get it on. Let's do it. Now, God is looking for some people right now who will stand up and say, let's do it. He says, be quiet for a while. When the time comes, you'd better be ready to go do it. And you'll go up against Satan. You'll go up against the whole world. You'll go up against the beast and the false prophet. And you'll win. Just a few. Gideon's. Just a few. doesn't take many. With two leaders who actually go up against the whole world nose to nose. And are given power over the nations and power over the kings. Now we've been wanting that to happen for a long time. But being mealy-mouthed about the day of the Lord. That's what it's talking about. That time. And Peter clearly says, looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, the day of the Lord, when the heavens and the earth are going to be dissolved. We should be praying for it to happen as soon as possible. Isn't that clear? Pretty clear to me. I'm not going to wonder about it anymore. Yeah, it's going to be awful. But it's also very abominable. And it needs wiped out. Don't you think Noah, when he was working on that boat, and listening to the jeers and the jibes and the hate and the cursing, thought, man, I need to get this boat finished. We need to float out of here. Let's get on with it. Come on, boys. Get up. We got to go work on the boat today. Every day but Sabbath. Got to go work on the boat. Let's get ready. We got to get out of here. Look to your fathers. Look to Noah. Let's get out of here. Let's get this thing on. Let's join the battle. Let's be ready to stand up at the gates not to shrink back or run into the desert, our tail dragging behind us. God wants men who will heal the breaches, who will stand in the breach between God and the world. That's what he's called us to do, and make haste in doing it.